We're reading this evening um, from the Beatitudes, and it's the start of a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's Matthew chapter 5, I'm starting to read at verse 1, and that's page 968 in the Pew Bibles. The Beatitudes. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Jesus, we've been singing and praying that you would light the way. So, Father, come by the power of your word, and would you redeem and restore us, and would you set us free tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. They've been described as Jesus' manifesto, Jesus' ethic, a visionary's impossible dream, And on the other hand, a cozy code of conduct that people claim to live by every day. Have these people ever even read them? I hear you say. They're known and respected by people of every culture, class, and creed. Nine bullet points to change the world. But I've always found the Beatitudes difficult, quite frankly. John Stott says in his commentary that they're the best-known bit of Jesus' teaching, but also the bit that's least understood and least obeyed, so at least I'm in good company. One problem, I guess, is over-familiarity. This passage was inevitably read by all those head girl types in school assembly. And what on earth does blessed mean anyway? It's all a bit ethereal and vague. Saints and the dear departed are blessed, but I don't expect to be generally. And then these Beatitudes, they're just not street smart, are they? Blessed are the rich and powerful, for they will walk all over you. Blessed are those who mourn, but only for a month or two, because we'll soon get bored with you. Blessed are the loud and the pushy, for they'll be the first in the queue. Blessed are those who know what they want and go after it with all their hearts, for God helps those who help themselves. That sounds a bit more like the way that this world actually works. 
But, you know, the real problem with the Beatitudes, at least for me, is the fear of failure factor. Which of us, hand on heart, could say that we were totally pure or or, or meek or or merciful or peacemaking or hungering for righteousness, etc., etc., etc.? It just seems like Jesus is setting us impossible standards here. And I might just be rewarded with the faintest hope of a wee bit of blessing if only I tried an awful lot harder. Poverty of spirit and peacemaking could do better. Purity of heart, well, let's not even go there. And if the only way to obtain mercy is to show mercy to others, well, how much mercy do I have to show to qualify? I get depressed when I read this bullet list, quite frankly. I just can't live up to it. And if this is what I'm meant to be like, if these are the requirements for God's favor, well, then I'm doomed before I even try. So is there any hope of happiness for me? What do these beatitudes really mean? And what is Jesus saying to us today in OPC? It maybe helps us to remember that these Beatitudes, they're not just plucked out of thin air. They're rooted firmly in a context. Jesus' announcement that he is the promised Messiah and that the kingdom of heaven has finally come near. And we're told in these beginning chapters of Matthew's Gospel that straight after his baptism and then his temptation, Jesus went about all of Galilee And he was teaching and preaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And that's the end of chapter 4 there. And then we get the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7, of which these Beatitudes are the start. So we get the teaching bit. And then straight after that, in chapters 8 and 9, we get on to healings and miracles and signs of power, Jesus' powerful presence, and he restores the blind and the lame and the demon-possessed, and he stills the storm, and he raises the dead. And then again, at the end of chapter 9, we get that little summary of Jesus' ministry again. Jesus went about all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness So this is all one single narrative, one single story, in other words. So let's not look at these Beatitudes in splendid isolation as a set of abstract principles that we blindly attempt to follow. Let's see them as Matthew intends them to be seen, as teaching inextricably bound with the healing and the revelation of Jesus' power and presence with us. You see, the teaching and the preaching and the healing and the miracles all go together, and you don't get one without the other. And that's an encouragement for us, and it's a key, really, to how we're to understand these verses, because we're never meant to try and do this of our own accord. We're to read the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, in the awareness of Jesus transforming power with us. You see, the kingdom has broken in. And the king is at hand. And that changes everything.
And then if you look at these Beatitudes themselves, we see that they're all notes on this one same theme, the kingdom. Chapter 5, verse 3 begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And verse 10 concludes, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So everything else, the mourning, the comfort, the hungering, the filling, the mercy, the purity, the peacemaking, it kind of comes sandwiched in between. So the Beatitudes aren't just arbitrary ethics for good living. They're statements of fact about life under the kingdom. This is what it means, and this is what life looks like when King Jesus is in charge of everything. And it's clear also, if you look at verse 1, that while the mountain is crowded with curious onlookers, Jesus is addressing this teaching, first of all, to his disciples, to those who've already aligned themselves to him and to his kingdom cause. In fact, the teaching occurs straight after Peter and Andrew and James and John have made the decision to follow Jesus. So again, this isn't a general treatise on how to be good living. But it sets out the distinctive character and role of those who follow Jesus, of those who know Jesus' presence with them, of those who do life together with him. This isn't just something we do in our own strength. It's just not something we embark on by ourselves. Apart from me, you can do nothing, as John's own gospel declares. And then there's the genre to consider. Some commentators think that the Sermon on the Mount is law, and Jesus is like Moses who ascended the mountain. And just as Moses produced the Ten Commandments, so Jesus is a new Moses who gives a new set of instructions for the crowds down below to follow. But if that's the case, this new law is unlike anything we've ever seen before. You see, it's not a list of do's and don'ts of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. It's not a series of commands. It's an indicative tense, not imperative tense for all you grammar nerds. You see, this is description, not prescription. In other words, Jesus isn't saying do thus and you'll be blessed. He's saying blessed are you right here and now. And there's also a link with prophecy. Commentators note that there's a close resemblance between the first few Beatitudes and Isaiah 61. And Isaiah 61 was a passage Jesus read in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth when he announced, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that passage goes like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and to comfort all who mourn. So this is good news of freedom, of long-for fulfillment, not unattainable burden. And is Jesus actually a stern lawgiver here? Is he not more like the wise man of Jewish tradition, like the Proverbs of, say, King Solomon, showing us a new and a better way to live, 
how to be in harmony with the world and your neighbor and how to enjoy and know God's blessing and God's favor. And when you start to look at the Sermon on the Mount like this, it isn't so much law and rules and regulations as generous invitation. Jesus is telling us a whole new way of life has been made possible and it's open to absolutely everyone. So the Beatitudes aren't about how to earn God's favor by having to do this, that, and t'other. They're about declaring that God's gracious favor, his blessing has already come upon us if we've decided to follow Jesus. But then there's that word blessing. It isn't the kind of phrase that means too much to me, to be honest. It seems kind of remote and detached. Is it anything more than some vaguely spiritualized good wish? Well, the word which we translate blessed was used in the ancient world to describe the gods, the blessed ones who lived a blissful life free from all the mortal pain and suffering upon earth. And the word blessed is also used in the Bible to describe God himself. So to be blessed is to take on something of God's own life and character to share in his eternal nature. But Jesus radically extends this usual concept of blessedness. You see, Jesus says we're blessed not because of freedom from hardship and suffering, but in spite of any hardship that we currently endure. You see, the circumstances of life cannot take God's favor, God's blessing from us, because it wasn't life that gave it to us. You see, this blessing from God isn't just for the present, for the here and now. It's also for the future, it's for eternity, as the second bit of each beatitude makes abundantly clear. And it's the hope of the coming kingdom that enables us to face the present, whatever the circumstances, with trust and confidence. Some people sometimes substitute happy for blessed, but that doesn't quite cut it in this context. To be happy, you see, is a feeling It's something fleeting and subjective. But to be blessed, well, that refers to a deep and lasting and permanently permanent condition, a divine act which can't be changed by anything, an objective statement of fact. And then to bless someone, well, it also conveys presence, permission, authority, empowerment, doesn't it? If you think of some medieval film and some king sending a knight or an envoy out on their mission, saying, go, you have my blessing. To be blessed is to have somebody's unconditional regard, to know you're not alone, for his eye of approval is on you, his authority goes with you, and you have a power that's not your own. So we need to understand these beatitudes, these blessings, not so much as a set of conditions that we have to try and keep, as a celebration of what Jesus has already done and what he's doing in our lives. And there's going to be much, much more to follow, and there are hints that it's not going to be completely comfortable, but our calling and our invitation tonight is simply to realize what we already are. So let's look then at what each beatitude, each blessing we've received entails in detail. And one word of caution, 
The Beatitudes, as we've already seen, come as a package deal. And ownership of the kingdom of heaven kind of tops and tails them all. So we can't say, for example, well, I'll have mercy, but persecution I'll leave to someone else. You see, these are kingdom attributes, kingdom facts, and they each apply to us all. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3. God's people in the Old Testament were often referred to as the poor because they suffered literal poverty due to exile or oppression. But gradually this term came to be used of all those who, because of their poverty and oppression, cast themselves completely upon God since they had nowhere else to turn and who trusted desperately in his coming vindication. And the word used here isn't just your average poor person. It describes utter wretches, destitutes, down and out, you might say. It was used, for example, of the poor beggar Lazarus at the gate of the rich man, of the widow with her might, of the amazed vagrants invited from off the streets to the wedding feast. Poverty of spirit, then, is the realization of your utter spiritual bankruptcy and destitution, your utter powerlessness without the Lord, the repentant tax collector as opposed to the smug Pharisee, the utter pits of spiritual and emotional desolation. It's unexpected, isn't it? Because at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus establishes firmly, well, we just can't do any of it. But then, blessed are you, says Jesus, when you realize you just can't do all that's expected of you. Blessed are you when you realize that your efforts at righteousness suck and your spiritual life is absolutely rubbish. Blessed are you when you realize that however hard you try, your thoughts and attitudes and actions just don't come up to scratch. Blessed are you when all the demands of your life and ministry start to look like way too much. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope and you just can't do a single thing more. Because that's when my spirit is free to take over. Blessed are you when you feel in your hearts the sentence of death. Because that's when I can give you my resurrection life. Only in your utter weakness can I manifest my strength. Likewise, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Verse 4. And we often see this as a promise of resurrection that comforts the bereaved. But in context, the mourning here is, it's the outpouring of those who know they are poor in spirit as they acknowledge their emptiness and brokenness before God, their inability to serve him as they know they should. Thus Isaiah cried, woe is me. And even Paul said, what a wretched man am I. And then more widely, we can think of those grieving the effects of sin and evil in this world, the apparent slowness of God's justice. Thus in Isaiah 61, the Jewish exiles in Babylon, they cried out to God because the righteous were suffering, the wicked were prospering, and God appeared to be doing nothing. And likewise, we get Jesus weeping over Lazarus' tomb, the widow's dead and only son, the rebellious city of Jerusalem. So to mourn here isn't to be polite and contained. It's to declare and weep and rant and rail and demand of God because things in this world just aren't what they ought to be. 
not by a very long chalk. But to mourn is also to be comforted in the midst of all the world's sin and misery and mess. Because in Jesus, our salvation has started. The exile and the estrangement are over. The kingdom is at hand. And we know that one day in the new heaven and the new earth, all things will be made new. All injustice abolished. There will be no more death. All sorrow and mourning and weeping will cease, for God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. And consequently, blessed are the meek, verse 5, for they shall inherit the earth. And we often see meekness as weakness, as people who just can't stand up for themselves. But, But meekness in the biblical sense, it refers not just to those who are weak, but to those who are strongly self-controlled. You see, they're people who know their spiritual poverty and the amazing riches of God's grace. And so they're not overly possessed by a sense of their own self-importance. They're not too worried about fighting for position or power or stuff because they know they're so loved by Jesus that they've absolutely nothing left they need to prove. And so they leave vindication to the Lord, just like Moses and just like Jesus did. They're not bogged down by egotism and competition. After all, they know the whole earth's already theirs for keeps, and nothing's going to rob them of this inheritance. I wonder if we're starting to see the utter outrageousness of this. You see, the good news uh, and the shock factor is that God's kingdom, well, it's not so much for the successful, for the mature, for the confident, for the comfortable, for the spiritual sorted people who are really going places. It's a kingdom that's for the empty and for the broken and for the ones with nothing left to give, for those not normally considered for high office, for the spiritual underachievers and the people on the fringes. And in fact, recognition of your spiritual limitations is a prerequisite for kingdom membership. But the continuing good news is in verse 6. Because Jesus doesn't just leave us like this, but he also empowers and inspires us not just to recognize and bemoan our spiritual need and our lack, but to desire to change it in accordance with his spirit. And in fact, we start to hunger and we start to thirst for God to change us. And it becomes as vital to us as food and drink. But notice that it's righteousness, a life lived in accordance with God's will, that we're to be blessed for hungering and thirsting for. And that that really challenged me. Because we're very happy, aren't we, to hunger for God himself, to seek more of God's presence and his spirit's power. But the logical outcome of this, to be changed by God's grace so that we desire what God desires and we love what God loves, well, that's maybe not such a popular prayer. But when we truly seek to align our will to his, he'll honor that desire as he fills us with his spirit. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And filled here is the the kind of slang word used for fattening animals up for slaughter. 
It's used of the fatted calf, for example. And it's how you feel after you've eaten a very, very, very big meal, like Christmas dinner, and you're absolutely stuffed, fit to bust. So if we want to be, Jesus says, we can be fit to bursting point with God's righteousness. We can be filled to the top. And there's nothing mean or stingy about what God longs to do for us. But you see, it's not those who are already righteous that God blesses. It's those who'd like to be righteous. Those who yearn to be different people but who are painfully aware of the mess they still are. So again, this beatitude is all about God's kindness and it's all about his grace. And of course, this is a work in progress for not until the new earth and the new heaven will we never again be hungry or thirsty for righteousness or for anything else. And in the meantime, we hope and we hunger on for we know that our God who's begun a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And so God fills our emptiness. He comforts us. He answers our prayer for righteousness. And with our emptiness filled and our relationship with God realigned, we're freed up to relate to others in a completely different way. And so the last four Beatitudes describe the outworking of that in our private and our public lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. You see, conscious that we have been and we constantly are being shown mercy by our God, we're able to be merciful ourselves. And we'll not be harsh or hard-nosed or indifferent to others when we find them in difficulties. For we've already been there and we've done that and we've worn the T-shirt far too often for ourselves to be sniffy about this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, the heart in the Bible is the center of our being. It's like our spiritual indicator level, if you will. And to be pure, it means to be whole, to be perfectly in tune, to be free from contamination and not mixed or adulterated by anything else. So when we're filled with Jesus' righteousness, we're free to be completely open and honest in all our dealings with God and others. And there's no dichotomy between what we say and what do we actually do or think or feel. And of course, this is again a work in progress. Having already been made right with God, we seek through his spirit to continually purify ourselves until that day when we're transformed completely into his likeness, when we shall see him pure and holy as he really is. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that stands to reason this. As sons and daughters of God, we automatically reflect the character of our dad, who's been from the beginning in the peace and reconciliation business. And so we seek to lessen tensions, to find solutions. We don't need to take things personally. We don't need to rise when our buttons are pressed. A better way is possible for us through his unending grace. In fact, we're enabled not just to be passive peacekeepers, but active peacemakers. Just as our Heavenly Father made all the running to us while we were still his enemies, and while we were still a very long way off. Which brings us to the crunch, verses 10 and 11. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You see, getting ourselves mixed up with Jesus and navigating a different way, well, it inevitably exposes us to public scrutiny and falsehood and mockery and worse. You see, you just can't be poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungry and thirsty for righteousness and merciful and pure in heart and a peacemaker in splendid isolation. And our culture pressurizes us to keep our religion private and personal, but the trajectory of the kingdom is to send us outwards from our personal relationship with God to our relationship with others, to be salt and light in wider society, and ultimately to be witnesses in every nation under heaven. Yet our confidence about the future gives rise to rejoicing, even in the thick of apathy or aggro or downright opposition. For this is the confirmation that we do indeed belong to Jesus, and that we are indeed engaged in meaningful kingdom business. The student is not above his teacher, nor the servant above his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, said Jesus. So in the upside-down economy of the kingdom, we see again God's good and God's blessing. Because whatever hassle we go through for Jesus' sake also becomes for us an affirmation and a means of growth and grace. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you don't expect us to climb to the top of the mountain, but that you meet us right where we are at the bottom. And thank you for the baseline of the kingdom, that we are blessed. Amen.